on this episode of Business Interrupted. Cyber attacks move so rapidly that you don't have time to think. It's got to be muscle memory. Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellon Solutions, we're hearing from the world's best leaders as they get into specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada. As the business world becomes more digitally focused and enabled, many of the most impactful disruptive events we encounter are cyber-driven. This raises questions like, what does a good cyber response strategy look like? And how have these strategies evolved in recent years? In this episode, Chief Information Security Officers Jim Castle of Kimberly Clark and Mark Eggleston of CSC join me to discuss the importance of cyber resilience and why it's not only a business issue, but a business imperative. To kick off the conversation, Mark and Jim share their thoughts on the role of the CISO in resilience planning for the business. CISOs have long had the responsibility for some forms or fashion of both business continuity and disaster recovery. And if you think about what we've been doing, in the, in especially in the SOC or security operations area, we've long had that kind of responsibility that, hey, you never know when you're going to get that call, but when you get that call, you got to go. So I think that's really prepared us to be very well posed to do this function very well. The security role a corporation security company does certainly include resilience. And we've gotten a lot of that done with a lot of the collaboration, both with our teams and the executives and, of course, the teams that are working so hard for that. But I think we've had this long experience with being defensive and being reactive and having a lot of tools at our disposal to jump in and do that. And we've also been very strong with teaming with external parties as well and making sure we know when to bring in the best SME to help address the issue. And uh, the other piece that a lot of CISOs I've seen here more recently is they're really working to make sure that we have people understand it's not if you're going to get breached, but when. So when you start thinking of that way, you automatically, when you start bringing up a system, you think, okay, how can we make sure we have the best high availability concerns in place and making sure that we can actually go ahead and try and resume that system before it goes into production? First and foremost, I think the CISO plays more of a role than ever in resilience for a lot of reasons, perhaps reasons we're not, we're not happy about, but many of our resilience impacts in, in corporate America are driven by cyber incidents, which automatically necessitates a CISO engagement. Whether you own B, C, or D or not, doesn't really matter. The issues are, are frequently cyber-driven, whether it's an attack in the OT space, operational technology, ransomware, it doesn't really matter. I think the CISO is driving the discussion. The focus, the prevalence on cybersecurity as a source of the interruption is going to drive it. It's going to continue to drive it. I think an important role that the CISOs have to play is ensuring executive visibility, whether it's the enterprise risk management group, the executive leadership team at your company, the board of directors, doesn't really matter. I think we have a fiduciary responsibility to drive that visibility, and I think it's part and parcel with the, with the role of the CISO. Mark, you said something, and I'm going to paraphrase, it's it's not a question of if a successful cyber attack would take place, it's when, and that's obviously a key role that, or a key accountability, if you will, in your organization. Jim, do you agree or disagree with that? 
Yeah, I definitely agree with it. I, I think if it's a true or false, if it's a binary question, the answer is true. Every company has experienced impact from cyber, even if not, even if it's only indirectly. Every company has. So I use the example of Log4j. Even if you weren't breached by Log4j, you were impacted by Log4j. So you had to do discovery in your environment. You had to figure out whether or not there was exposure, what version you were running. You had to patch. Oh, yeah, then repatch. So the reality is everybody has been experienced by cyber. Everybody. Again, it may not have been a breach per se, but it was it was absolutely uh, some sort of impact. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Some are more impactful than others. You may not have been directly compromised, but everybody had a hand. Corporations globally had a hand in figuring out what is their exposure. So if we all agree, what does a good cyber response capability look like? Mark, do you want to you kick us off on that one? In a word, resiliency, which I guess is your key topic today, right? But resilient thinking is really, really helpful. So thinking of what could possibly go wrong, using your experience with maybe a sysadmin, network admin, heck, in my experience, thinking about a hospital ward, what can go wrong, right? So when you start thinking about all those things, and we're often asked to what keeps you up at night, I guess it's just our way of thinking. You're always thinking about all the negative things. And so you can then start to hypothesize certain controls and ways to bolster that response or make that control a little bit more stable, more resilient, so to speak. So I think that's something. I think also a lot of us are battle tested, currently have a couple veterans on the team. And I think that having that mindset has been a good predictor of success and security, having people that have been in the Marines, the Army, et cetera, any other national defense, because they know how to execute and know how to keep things calm. And I think that's another really, really good, important thing when you're going through these responses. And that's why we do the tabletop test, right? Because you really start to see a lot of the things that come out there and people getting stressful because you have to make decisions with very limited information. And I think that's where a lot of us shine again, because we have frameworks that help us make some of these decisions and concede the known unknowns and the things that we do know. So first of all, I mean, I'll state the obvious, good is relative, right? <laughs> good depends upon the severity of the impact, the, the, the maturity of the team, the use of the frameworks, as, uh, as Mark mentioned. But I think first and foremost, it's, it's awareness of an event. How, how can you respond if you're not aware of an event? So you got to make sure you're, you have the wherewithal to actually be aware that something is occurring and it's triggering a cyber response. Next is communication with all constituencies about what is happening. Because if you're not communicating, some people are going to be not only obviously unaware, but confused and maybe even concerned about, hey, I heard something. Where do we stand? So you got to be clear about your communications and the fact that a response is underway. And I think something that Mark said, which is, I think, pivotal, you've got to have an instant response, not one that you just made up, not one that you just pulled off of the internet, but one that basically you have, uh, I'll say tried and true, you've practiced it, you've tested it. It cannot be ad hoc, that's for sure. An instant response plan, and it, it, again, it dovetails with Mark's comments, is something that ensures a level of rigor. It, it ensures a level of, quite frankly, calmness, which gives you that good and instant response. You're not making it up as you go along. And I wholly agree with that. And I think the other piece there, too, is sometimes you try and get everybody in the same room and you have a, a massive tabletop test. I think there's importance in having both the technical or the SOC team incident response with the other extended teams on the network and desktop side. And I think there's also really vital importance to getting your executives together. And the two tests couldn't be done more differently, right? Because you're gearing one towards forensic technical capabilities, making sure people know about containment with the more technical teams and with the executives. It's more about making sure people know the roles and responsibilities. 
and then again, practicing, making decisions with limited information. Those things, they'll never get old. And every time you have one, you always discover more and more gaps. And that's the best time to discover them. It's when you're actually testing. So when you do need them, you've got hopefully a few more of those gaps closed, thereby making your response more resilient. From my perspective, there's probably three types of tabletops or practices. One is with your ELT, your executive leadership team. At a macro level, they need to understand, obviously, the coming, if you will, of cybersecurity and, and the incidents that are going to potentially impact the business. So clearly, the ELT must understand it. Second, the business, I'll say the operational business, needs to understand what it means to have a playbook and a response that not only includes normal business interruptions, and it should be a generic response, right, but it should also include the ability to understand how do I work around if I don't have systems due to a cyber attack. And last but not least, I'll say a more technical or tactical tabletop with your security operations center and your broader information security team, which can include folks from the IT organization as well. You can't just say, hey, we did a tabletop. I think it's it's relative and I think you need to do all three of those. Clearly, this is not a technical issue when we talk about cyber response. It's a business issue first and foremost with that involves really all levels of the business and of course, technology. Building upon what good looks like or maybe that playbook that you both have talked about, what are some of the external resources that make up a good cyber response capability? Yeah, I think there's there's a few groups that you need to have. I'll say arrows in your quiver, for lack of a better phrase. One is, if you don't, you should probably have some sort of forensic team on retainer. Because if you're trying to get a hold of a forensic group in the middle of an incident, it's going to be tough and luck are the two words I would use. It's going to be very difficult. So that's point one. Point two, and you cannot underestimate this, similar to what we're talking about here, Brian, with Mark, is your peers. You've got to engage your peers. We are not the bastions of, of perfect knowledge, and we should be learning from each other. I cannot stress enough the, the use of, of peer groups. Industry consortiums, whether it's the ISAC, the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers, I think there's 27 right now, plus or minus, definitely loop in with them. And then government agencies, whether it's a DHS, Secret Service, whatever it happens to be, I think that has got to be an essential component of your external team players. And by the way, this is a team sport. There's no such thing as, oh, I'm going to, I've got my cybersecurity program. I'm not going to share it with Mark. That's ridiculous. We're all in this together because we're all at risk. I'd agree with all those points that Jim mentioned. In fact, we're working to combine both our monitoring team and our incident response team being the same vendor. And I think there's some advantages to having that. So as that team becomes more familiar with your operations, what things to look out for, what things to perhaps not wake you up until two o'clock in the morning for, they'll also be better poised to help you out with incident response. Definitely a big fan of bringing in three-letter agency folks, right? And one of the great way to do that, too, in addition to resources that Jim mentioned is InfraGuard. So InfraGuard is the affiliation to help the public with the agency. So that's a good way to get introduced to your local FBI person and make sure they know you, your name, hopefully even your phone number, and making sure all that is well-placed and those expectations are set. You don't want to be looking for those contacts when the stuff hits the fan, so to speak, right? You want to make sure you have that already in your incident response. There's other key vendors too. Most of us have a secure email gateway. Most of us have some type of a secure web gateway and lots of other security products. So making sure that you also got those contacts and establish relationships long before you need them is really, really helpful too, because that way they're going to be more apt to get back to you in a very tight timeline, which chances are that's when you're going to want them to get back to you. So having somebody that you can reach out to and say, hey, what kind of defensive, what kind of 
you know, IOCs are you seeing here? What kind of uh, tips, tactics, techniques can you detect and help us with here? So all those things. We pay our vendors a lot of money and they've helped us out a lot of different ways. So making sure that they know that when you have something like this is urgent, you will be contacting them. You expect them to perform at a very high level, I think is uh, very helpful. I would add that pick and choose wisely, right? Don't boil the ocean. Don't have 50 of your vendors in your instant response plan. Pick and choose three to five that you view as strategic partners and make sure you have those contact details very clearly. And I don't mean a 1-800 number. I mean somebody that you can on speed dial with text, I need you right now. Don't assume a 1-800 number will get you what you want because I can pretty much guarantee you it won't. So you always need to think about not only your strategic partners, but what is the best means of communication with those strategic partners? We also need to make sure that we stress the importance of uh, counsel, right? Not only your internal counsel, but they typically will reach out to the external counsel that you've inevitably have some level of contracts with to help you out with these things. So they can establish the client attorney privilege and making sure that, that those information, those disclosures are done in accordance with that. So certainly can't miss that piece. Based on where you sit in the organization, your peers on the executive management team, board of directors, what type of questions, concerns are they bringing to you? Questions regarding capability or maybe what expectations are they are they sharing as it relates to cyber response? Mark, you want to go first? I'll preface it to say I think boards are going to be vastly different across industry and your relationship with them. So I would start there, making sure that you understand where they're coming from, their vocational history, so to speak, and what's important to them. I think most boards have Wall Street Journal and many other subscriptions, so they're seeing this stuff most likely every week and a lot of times every day. So starting to engage with them on some of those articles, I think, makes a lot of sense. And making sure what their expectations are of you. I think they're used to hearing us like a little log for shell type things uh, if they make it up to that level. But a lot of times your boards don't even see that minutia and that detail. They just want to make sure that you've got a roadmap and a plan in place and that we're better than the competition. Those are more the board things. There's some great resources out there to help you out with what type of questions a board will ask. But in my experience, a lot of times those board level questions are very high level. They're, how are we doing? Are we better than the competition? What do you need from us? Are there anything else that you need? Those are the type of great questions you want to get from the board, showing their support. I would say that the, the paradigm has shifted, right? So there's been movement afoot for a long time about requiring that you have board expertise on your board. And if not, why not? And declare it. And, and as well as what are you doing to get the expertise on your board? And obviously there's new legislation about re- reporting requirements. I think that still has time to flesh itself out. But I think Mark mentioned Wall Street Journal. Everybody on the board reads Wall Street Journal. Everybody. Okay. So cyber response is at the forefront of pretty much all discussions. I'll use the war uh, against Ukraine right now as an example. They're paying attention to it. I think there is this unease at boards that we are in, we are in a new paradigm. And awareness preparation and I'll say communication are going to be essential. Assuming that you've got a SOC, assuming you've got the right uh, solutions deployed, assuming you have the right partners, you know, those are table stakes. Your board's assuming that, but they're starting to dig into, I want to know a little bit more than just surface layer. I want to dig in more than I have in the past. And I am definitely seeing that. It's been a shift that's been going on, but I would say in the last probably 12 months, maybe 24 months, it's become pronounced. What's the difference in your opinion in terms of, of carrying out a successful cyber response compared to other types of disruptions? And what do you expect to see as changes in the near future? Jim, you want to go first? 
First and foremost, we talked about an instant response plan. But a key component of an instant response plan is some level of automation, call it SOAR, as we call it in the industry. If you're not doing some level of automation, you're, you are probably going to be in trouble because, let's face it, cyber attacks move at the speed of an electron. So what's different, Brian, what's different is the fact that cyber attacks move so rapidly that you don't have time to think. It's got to be muscle memory, and you've got to have the right instant response plan. You've got to have automation that quarantines automatically. You better quarantine first, then figure out if you over-quarantine and back off from there. So plan, automation, and then I'm going to say the severity communication that goes with that, the SEV1 communication that goes with that is essential. Those three things, in my opinion, are, are really what makes it different. And again, I'll reiterate the speed of the cyber attack and, and how quickly things occur. I would say this is where execution probably separates a lot of the uh, mediocre responses. So long ago, I was copying down the Anthem and the Premiera hacks from, from yesteryear. And you did that because some of these were cited by industry folks as, hey, these are really good responses. People can learn something from that. So I try and make sure that we save good responses. So when that time comes, not if, we've got those copies of those responses formulate our response. The security industry as a whole has started to become a little bit kinder to neg- negatively critiquing instantly folks' responses because when you're in those uh, situations, you understand how difficult it is to get highly accurate information out quickly. And that's what your consumers want, right? That's what your stakeholders want. And it's really tough to do that. So making sure that you've got those great relationships with your marketing communication department is really helpful too. So you can help them come up with some nice canned responses that could be tweaked, of course, as needed. But you know, even in my communications with the uh, companies now, both that I've served in the past and currently, I've really come highly dependent upon the marketing's uh, red pen to help our messages seem a little bit more salient, help our messages seem a little bit more impactful. And that's what they do for a living. So always making sure that you pull them in is really good. And Mark, if uh, anyone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to uh, follow up? LinkedIn is always a good thing for me. Ditto. My details are actually in LinkedIn, but uh, you drop me new through LinkedIn and I will respond and uh, be happy to further the discussion because, uh, again, this is a team sport and we're all in this together. Jim made a great point that cyber attacks move rapidly. And if your strategy or plan isn't muscle memory, your security and your resilience is at risk. As the leading provider of resilience management solutions, Castellon helps organizations manage risk so they can confidently respond to business disruption. For more on Castellon solutions, visit castellonbc.com. My key takeaways from this episode include, number one, being intentional on creating a cyber response strategy and bringing the right people and resources together, both internal and external to the organization. Number two, cyber response is not just a technical solution nor is it all about working to prevent disruption through assessments and penetration testing, for example. It's a business issue that involves bringing leadership into the response effort. And number three, having a strategy is a necessity, but often the most significant confidence-building measure is practice, and practicing a lot is absolutely essential to building confidence. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this scenario's episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to castellonbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.